0: Hey there! Welcome to the third episode of Season 2 of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student in fitness student.
1: And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life.
0: On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Larry Young, a professor of psychiatry at Emory University and lifelong researcher of mammalian relationships.
1: Turns out, some of love's magic can simply be explained by biochemistry.
0: Let's get after it. Dr. Larry Young grew up in rural South Georgia and went to college at the University of Georgia, where he majored in biochemistry. He became fascinated by how brain chemistry and genes regulate behaviors in animals and humans. Dr. Young obtained his Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin, where he studied the brain mechanisms of sexual behavior in lizards. He then moved to Emory University in Atlanta, where he is now a professor in the Department of Psychiatry. His main interest is understanding how genes and brain chemistry direct social behaviors and hopes to use that knowledge to develop new treatments for disorders such as autism. Dr. Young, thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Where where did you maybe derive the inspiration to pursue the field you're in and how did the direction that you've taken come to be?
2: Well, when I was a kid, you know, growing up in South Georgia out in the country, I spent a lot of times, you know, out walking around in the woods and seeing lots of animals. And I loved animals. And I had also had lots of pets, pet snakes, and uh, just different possums and things like that. And so I, I just really loved animals, the diversity of animals that were out there. And I thought it was really cool that all these animals that are out there, they have certain kind of information in their brain, you know, when they're born, so that they know who to mate with, They know how to do the courtship dance of their species. You know, certain species are very aggressive or territorial or all this diversity is there. And somehow they know how to do that. And that, that fascinated me as a kid, but I didn't know much about science at the time. And, uh, you know, I went to college just to get a career and I was, you know, my, uh, I was good at science. So I was probably going to go into medicine, but then as I was, In classes, you know, taking biochemistry classes, learning about genetics and the genome and all this kind of stuff, you know, I just kind of put things together and I realized, you know, all those instructions that told all those animals what to do somehow must be encoded in the linear sequence of DNA that's present when they are a single cell. And that's a sequence of A's, G's, C's, and T's that somehow tell a deer to mate with another deer and to win to mate and how to take care of their babies and all the, you know, how to survive predators and all these kinds of things. And so to me, that was just really, really cool. And I was a biochemistry major. So I was learning about all these reactions and how, you know, enzyme substrates go through the enzyme and, you know, you could you could really understand processes of life through real biochemical terms. And then I just sort of thought, wow, you know, there's that DNA and DNA polymerase that makes replication, sometimes it makes mistakes and produces diversity, but then you got transcription, makes proteins, and then somehow you develop a brain and then you have instincts. So to me, that, that was really, really cool, you know, sort of the biochemical nature of this, you know, this behavior that I observed. And so, you know, this was back in 1989. And I was like, I want to go to, I don't want to being a physician. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's, that, that wasn't what I was interested in. I wanted to like figure out how things worked. And uh, so I went to the library and looking for anything about biochemistry and behavior. And I found this lab out in Texas that was studying snakes and lizards and geckos and things like that. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. So um, I went, I only applied to one grad school, went out to the University of Texas and did my PhD out there. And my PhD was on these lizards that there was two species of lizards. One, they all lived in the desert and they looked the same. But uh, one species had males and females and the males liked to have sex with the females and they would court the females and they would have sex like most animals do. The other species was parthenogenetic, which means that they cloned themselves. There were only females. There were no males around. But their ancestors' brains had evolved so that they wouldn't produce the hormones to make eggs unless somebody was trying to have sex with them. So they needed that courtship behavior to produce the hormones to make eggs. So this species that only had females evolved a homosexual behavior. So that the females would oscillate between being thinking they're males and being turned on by other females of their species and mounting them, doing the whole courtship dance, mount them, and then they would actually copulate, you know, go through the sexual act. And that nothing would transfer, no sperm, no DNA. It's just this excitement of the sexuality kicked off the hormones that made that female produce an egg. And then a few days later, they would switch roles. So to me, that was cool. You got two species look the same, but something must be different in the genetic code when they are conceived that produces this difference in behavior. And you know that was my phd and then that that sort of same idea is why i started working on what i'm still working on today which is voles and diversity and social behaviors
1: i find it so fun to listen to other phds talk about kind of their journey because so often they mention that they were good at science and were somewhat interested in medicine and i had the exact same path going through college i basically knew I was good at science, I liked doing science, so the logical next step was to become a physician. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sitting next to a future physician right now, um, so I better wash my mouth. <laughs> but it is that I'm so interested by the same thing, just to see how all of life really reduces down to this code that tells us and every other creature on earth what to do. And it's it's really kind of humbling and, and a little scary when you kind of boil it down so much but it is to me I think one of the most fascinating realities of science is, is how everything comes down to genetics.
2: You know I'm, I'm really interested in that but you know I also come from a, I come from a kind of a, um, a religious you know background culture in South Georgia and um, but the idea that diversity in behaviors and things like that Come about through random mutations of DNA. Most of them are deleterious, but sometimes they give an animal a little bit different behavior or different something that allows them to survive. And it looks like in the end that there's some kind of directed, you know, you're, you're creating a new behavior that does something interesting, like say the evolution of monogamy, for example. But that the idea that that all comes about through a bunch of random mistakes made by a DNA polymerase to me was kind of cool, you know, so it's kind of like a, you know, it's not religion it's kind of replaces that, you know, it's like, here's how you can have these random mutations to give rise to to new things. And also as an undergraduate, you know, I I thought it was really cool. I loved learning about the experiments that people did long time ago, you know, the classic experiments and, you know, you read about those and like, wow, those people were doing really cool stuff. They discovered something really fundamental and that's that's kind of what I thought. You know, I wanted I wanted to do something like that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And it, those I, I remember learning about a lot of those classical experiments, whether it's everything from Mendel's peas to <laughs> learning about just Darwin and like all everything. Like all those classic examples are they're inspiring in a lot of ways to like see that these discoveries can be made with purposeful. Action and research that maybe a little bit of uh, luck in there where they're at the right place at the right time and it just it's cool how that how that comes about and precipitates. So getting into some of like the research you do, we read a little bit about you know neurogenetics of social cognition, kind of something that we were you know just touching on. But like in broad terms, it it makes sense that you know we're all different in our perception of social interactions and our respective social behaviors and dispositions, and that something has to underlie that. Um, So the fact that it comes from genetics and different polymorphisms in our code, it, it makes sense. But could you maybe just elaborate on how that can precipitate or lead to social dysfunction or disorders that we see in society?
2: Yeah, you're right. So like, I think we'll talk about more of this later, but, you know, I studied these two animals, these little voles, one of which was very highly social, and they formed these bonds and males took care of babies and things like that. So they had a very sort of highly affiliative social behavior. And then these other ones were basically asocial. They preferred to be by themselves. They have no empathy for other animals of their species and things like that. Those are two different species. And, you know, we discovered some mechanisms that give rise to that. And that sort of led us to this idea like, hey, wait a minute, people, we're we're not different species, but we're different individuals and we have a lot of diversity in social behavior. And just in the normal realm, there's a lot of diversity. You can look at like politicians, they're very good at sort of tweaking your social brain, you know, making you believe them and trust them and things like that. And then there are people that are just have no empathy, no care for other people or prefer to be alone and all that. And. So uh, it sort of made sense that this diversity that we see in animals, in different species might be related to diversity in what we see in people. And there is some evidence for that. You know, I study oxytocin and vasopressin, so it's probably just a tiny fraction of the source of diversity in human behavior, but even within that system, there is evidence that uh, variation in these systems contribute to variation in human behavior. But just things like um, how attuned we are to the emotions of another, how it affects us when another person is distressed, whether whether that really affects us in a gut way and we go attend to them. Or But then it also, and this, this is why I get money to do this research and why I do the research is that uh, for psychiatric disorders like autism, uh, those individuals, I mean, there are lots of cognitive issues in autism and autism itself is a very diverse disorder but the one common theme is that difficulty in processing social information. And so, you know, what I do is I use animals and study from a biochemical and a neuroscience and a neural circuit level to try to understand how the brain processes social information. That's a very fundamental process that animals need to do. And, you know, we can learn something from the animals about the chemistry of that and the circuitry of that and how neurons communicate with each other that really does apply to disorders like autism and in fact the the chemical that i studied 25 years ago that is involved in pair bonding in these little voles that i study is the leading candidate for treating the social deficits in autism today and wow. at that time for the first first 10 to 15 years i never really thought that what I would learn by studying these little rodents that normally run around the prairie and what makes them form bonds with each other would have any translational implications for treating human disorders. But that's what in fact has happened.
0: That's fascinating. Like autism, I studied neuroscience as an undergraduate and autism is a major, I guess, um, disorder that I was able to study. And it it, it really is fascinating but there were two things that you mentioned in your discussion of that that I think are important for our audience that I would like to just elaborate or ask you on. One is you know, oxytocin vasopressin. Maybe not everybody knows what that is, and it'd be awesome if you can kind of give us the bird's eye view of, of what those compounds are, as well as this talk of bonding, like social bonding, what constitutes a social bond and how is that defined? Because a lot of people can think of that in a different way, whether it's somebody that, you know, your barista that you see at the local coffee store every day to like a lifelong best friend to your spouse, like there's varying degrees of this social bond. So just from your research perspective and yeah, could you give us like a working definition of that?
2: Okay, well, let me first start to tell you a little bit about oxytocin and vasopressin since you asked that first. And both of these peptides are non-amino acid peptides produced in the hypothalamus. Uh, They're present in all vertebrates. And before vertebrates, there was a single gene that became duplicated to give rise to oxytocin and vasopressin. But it's even present in C. elegans, the little worm. But in mammals, let's say humans and mammals. uh, Oxytocin is released when a mother, it was first discovered. Oxytocin means uh, quick birth in Greek. And it was discovered because this molecule is released from the pituitary when a mother is getting ready to give birth. And it's released in pulses and it goes down to the uterus. It goes to the blood system, to the uterus, causes the uterus to contract, and then she gives birth. And more than half of women that give birth get injections of oxytocin now uh, to help with the birth. That, That molecule, so it's responsible for giving birth. After a baby is born, when the mother is nursing the baby, when the baby suckles the breast, that nerve stimulation from the breast goes up to the brain, causes those neurons to fire. That oxytocin, that peptide molecule is secreted back into the blood. It binds to receptors on the breast, causes milk ejection. So the baby can get milk. So it's a quintessential maternal peptide. But what we also know is also released in the brain. There are receptors in the brain and it makes that mother want to take care of that baby, to bond with that baby. And to think that baby is the most special baby in the world. You know, you ever talk to a mother who's just given birth, you know, it's just say, look at my baby. This baby is the cutest. Isn't she the cutest baby you've ever seen? (laughs) Even though it looks just like any other baby that, you know, that I've ever seen. But she thinks that's baby is special. And that's what oxytocin is doing. And we know that it's acting in different parts of the brain to help that brain process that social information and linking that baby's face and smell and everything to the reward system of the brain. And she just thinks that baby is just the best thing. Okay, that's oxytocin. And that happens in all mammals, all mammals, mothers take care of their babies. Vasopressin is a male typical hormone. Okay, it's it's regulated by testosterone, and it tends to be involved in like territorial behavior. Like most mammals, you know, males they get their territory. This is my territory. You stay away. And you get a big enough nice territory, you might get females to come in, and you can have babies and stuff. Vasopressin also acts in the kidney to with urine production. So it's involved in territoriality. But in some monogamous species, vasopressin tends to be involved in the male assuming the female is part of their territory and they're bonding with the female and being protective, mate guarding against that. That's what oxytocin does in all species, but in a very few species of mammals. So now we get to the bonding part. 95% of mammals, males and females, you know, they come together, they mate, after they mate, the male splits because his main objective is to mate with as many females as possible. <laughs> the female's objective is to have her babies and to reproduce and maybe to get good genes for those babies. So to select a good male, that's what 95% of species do. Females have the babies and raise them by themselves. But in some situations, it's more adaptive for the male and female to cooperate together to raise those offspring. And in those cases, you typically monogamy evolves, where when they mate, they don't mate just to transfer sperm. If you ever watched the March of the Penguins, it's pretty amazing how the, you know, these penguins are bonded and one of them will have to go off and get food for you know, days and days and days. And they come back and they pop up and there's like 10,000 penguins there. And to me and you, they all look the same. But to them, their brain is tuned to find their partner. And in the monogamous species, and when, we, when a biologist says monogamous, we don't mean sexually faithful we mean that they form an emotional bond or a bond between the two and they nest, they stay together. Sometimes monogamous animals cheat, you know? Yeah. So, so what I have been studying is the the neural basis of what is happening in the brain when those animals are mating and that bond is forming. And what we found is that same molecule that causes mothers to bond with their babies is used by evolution. It's tweaked a little bit. Things are tweaked receptors move around in the brain evolutionarily so that when the animals mate, it's like the mother is giving birth. The individual that they're mating with is kind of like their offspring, and they become bonded with that individual. And then, therefore, that oxytocin is released and helps them form that bond. And then in the male, you, know, you also have the vasopressin releasing, and then it has kind of a possessive territorial component to it. Uh, that's what I have studied for 25 years and I can go into details, you know, all kinds of details more than you want to know about what's going on in the brain. But just to briefly summarize, you know, what it does is it makes social stimuli more salient so that the brain can perceive that social stimuli very clearly. So I use the analogy of if you've ever seen a television screen that has a lot of static in it, there may be a, a movie playing behind it because of all the static, you can't really see it. But if you could turn a knob to make all the static go away, then you've got a very clear image of what's going on in that movie. And what oxytocin is doing in the brain is reducing that static. And it's doing it by decreasing the noise of neural firing, of neural circuitry noise, so that the signal can come through much more clearly. And that signal in many animals is the smell of the partner, the sound, the, the you know, in those... Penguins, it's actually the voice. They recognize the voice of the partner or the uh, this the face in humans and primates. That becomes very clear and very salient. And then that flow of information can go to the hippocampus where memories are made. It can go to the nucleus accumbens where dopamine acts to produce reward. And so basically a pair bond is linking of the neural encoding of the partner with the reward center, the addiction center. And a pair bond... Is very much like an addiction to a partner. And, but you ask about other kinds of bonds too, right? But the barista, I don't know about the barista. We haven't done those experiments yet. Right? <laughs> Others have done studies of bonds between humans and their dogs and shown that when dogs look into the eyes of their owners, the owners release oxytocin into their body and probably into firming. their brain. And then when humans look at the dogs, there's a release of oxytocin to the dogs. If you give oxytocin to a dog, it will look at the owner more. And then the owner will have more oxytocin. So there's like a positive feedback loop. And that's something that's evolved in dogs through nat- uh, artificial selection during right. domestication. Because if you look at wolves who don't bond with humans, but if you, even if you raise the wolf like a dog... The wolf will never look into the eyes of a human, but dogs, we have selected them so that they do look into our eyes to tap into our oxytocin system so that it's kind of like they're our baby and we want to take care of them. I can see that in my own life. We, we've got three dogs. Our kids are all growing up now. And my wife is like, you know, I'm like third in line in my family. In terms of- <laughs> hierarchy. These are all, you know, chemical reactions and neural reactions in the brain that do these things that really are part of our everyday lives. And so probably friendships and lots of kind of bonds involve things like oxytocin, but it's just that pair bond, that romantic bond, that is something that, you know, humans do that you don't see in most other animals. seems to be like a combination of this oxytocin, which is very much making your partner pop in your brain through enhancing signal to noise and the flow of information across brain regions. And that coinciding with the dopamine, which is released when you take cocaine or heroin, you put those two things together. You become addicted to your partner. And that's what love is basically.
1: Well, I definitely can resonate with the dog situation as we actually have our own dog Rigatoni cutest puppy in the world we unfortunately have fallen into the trap and then my family has had a few dogs uh, throughout the course of my life and we definitely treat our Bernadotte like a child if not the favorite child (laughs) so we've all fallen victim to their trap
2: (laughs) yeah it is a trap cats have a trap too it's a little bit different though (laughs)
1: It is kind of crazy when you think about things that we we associate with emotions, right? You don't ever think of love and this kind of bonding as a biochemical process, right? Like you think about digestion or breathing or your heart rate or all these sorts of things as something your body kind of does without you having any control over it and you're kind of okay with that. I'm not upset that I can't have conscious control over my digestion, But we we like to think that love and these types of relationships are something that we have absolute control over when I think maybe to some extent we do. But I think biochemically, there's definitely kind of a, a part that's out of your control. Right.
2: Right. Yeah. So this is maybe let me contrast love with bonding. Okay, because love is a human condition, a human capacity that, you know, you you think you have control over and, and it, to some extent you probably do. But, you know, my research is based on this idea that many of the capacities that humans have, the emotions that we have are evolutionarily very ancient. We didn't just one day evolve and, and poof, we got a brain that can make us have those kinds of behaviors. Evolution tinkers with things that already exist, like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, all these things that already exist. And so things like bonding, you know, love. Yeah, we have some unique characteristics because of our highly complex neocortex that allows us to not only feel this emotion without any thought, but we think about the future. We even think in words, we put a language to our thoughts about our partner and things like that. And maybe animals can't do that. But the, the subcortical aspects of that bond are similar to what happens in animals, monogamous primates that are bonded with each other. There's a lot of core common subcortical things that involve the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens, the hypothalamus, all of that. And then these little voles, which are little rodents, you know, you might, you might see them and think they're a mouse or a rat. And these are the things that probably, uh, where, where are you guys from? Where do you live hey, now?
1: I I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and we're both in Chicago now.
0: And I'm from Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah, so in Chicago and Pittsburgh, there's little voles running around, and if you got cats, cats will bring them in and put them on your doorstep. But awesome. these guys, they have this this love life at home, in their nest, and 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 that they have the same brain areas that we do. We have a more elaborated cortex, but they also have the same amygdala parts, nucleus cummins parts, and And we don't have any chemicals in our brain that are not in those animals either. You know, even let's think about something that's really human, and that is, say, empathy and compassion. Right. Someone else is injured. That affects us. And then we do something about that. We we discovered in these little voles that if their partner is distressed, if they experience some stressful experience, then the partner recognizes that. And then they get stress hormones, corticosterone, to the same degree as their partner does. They're stressed out by their partner being stressed. And then they go and groom the partner to alleviate their stress. Meadow voles, the other species of vole that I study that are asocial, they don't care if their partner is distressed. They don't even pick it up. It just doesn't register to them. So a lot of animals, they don't care if another animal is stressed. But these voles that are bonded, they do. And it turns out oxytocin, acting in the anterior cingulate cortex, which in humans is involved in empathy, is involved in these voles showing that behavior. And so that's just an example of how the evolutionary antecedent of human emotions that philosophers have written about for hundreds of years are present in these animals, And I think it's easier for us to appreciate, to understand, or to believe that a little rat's emotions and their behaviors are driven by biochemistry than it is to believe ours. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in my view, ours is still driven by those things. There is still some magic in the human brain that we don't understand. Right. Um, The very complicated cortex that allows us to think in more complex ways than these animals do. But below that, we're still driven by those chemicals. And I keep going back to this maternal behavior because I think that is just the strongest instinctive behavior. A human mother is not that different from a wildebeest mother out you know, <laughs> in Africa where she has a little baby wildebeest and the lion comes And do you think the mother runs away from that lion? No, she, she fights that lion and that's oxytocin. The the chemicals are acting in the brain. Nature has selected those chemicals to act in the brain, activate these circuits to help them survive. The ones that didn't have the, those chemicals to do that, they just got eaten by the lion.
1: It's remarkable to put it that way, actually.
0: It's just, like, mind-blowing. Every time you, like, the next example you throw at us, one after another, about how these peptides, oxytocin, vasopressin, underlie so much of, like, the bonds between mammals and humans. And it's mind-blowing, truly. So thank you for enlightening us on the process. And I'm sure Olivia, as well as myself, we both found that incredibly interesting.
1: My, like, biochemistry neurons are are just tingling right now yeah, they're, firing <laughs> they're, firing up. So they're firing up they're
0: firing up um but we want to do before wrapping up just touch on your your book because you wrote a book on love as well entitled the chemistry between us love sex and the science of attraction we want to give you the floor if you want to uh plug your book
2: yeah so the, the, i wrote this book you know just based on all of my research it's not just about love but also about sexuality what makes males and females different and how there are certain disorders in humans where individuals are born, with the parents thinking that they're females and then they reach a certain age and they grow male genitals and then how that affects the sexuality and these lizards that I talked about and in, in nature, there's all kinds of variability. And then, and then, you know, what drives mother, maternal behavior in all species and how that's integrated into the reward system. And, and so I wrote this book based on, all the things that I like to think about and that I had taught in my lectures. And, and I wanted to relate it to humans. So we combined both the animal research and also some human studies. And it's written for a lay audience. So someone who's interested in human behaviors, you'd find this very interesting. I wrote it with a, with a uh, popular science writer, Brian Alexander. So it's not too biochemical but it's enough biochemical to be interesting to a scientist as well as a layperson. So I encourage you to take a look at it.
1: That sounds like an ideal book, actually. A biochemistry book that isn't a biochemistry textbook.
2: <laughs> Not too many of those. Yeah. It has a little bit of a sense of humor to it as well.
1: Oh, perfect. I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show and enlightening us as a couple, as scientists and our audience, of course, on What really drives love and relationships, both in humans and otherwise. And it is actually, I think the most humbling part of it all is how similar we really are to so many other species that we like to think we're so far above, but we're really not in a lot of ways. So
0: (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it?
2: Exactly right. Yeah. We have our animal instincts and we're driven by those and we just have a little bit of something on top.
1: Yeah, the, the magic. The magic cortex. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much.
2: Okay, thank you for having me. Bye bye.
0: Well, it was a pleasure speaking with Dr. Young. I really enjoyed um, his insight and everything he had to share with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, moving on from the interview, because um, we have part two coming up next week. I want to get into a recurring segment we have, Silly Science with Drew.
1: Probably my favorite segment, to be honest.
0: In this week's rendition, we are looking at autophagy, autophagy.
1: You know, neither of those pronunciations ever quite did it for me.
0: Honestly, (laughs) I don't really know which one's right, but here we are. Here we are. The title of today's paper that we are... Looking at is called untangling autophagy measurements, all fluxed up. (laughs) Nice. So autophagy is or autophagy is a process through which cells can get rid of their like protein aggregates and kill cells. It's a way of waste clearing. Waste clearing, yes. And there is a type of measurement uh, of autophagy. It's called autophagy flux. I believe, and it's not something I'm familiar with. However, I thought the title was interesting. Therefore, we are incorporating into our silly science. I love it. Um, but it is, a it, you know, it's a important process in the heart to help with injury and just maintenance of cells and cardiac tissue. Um, and apparently from the looks of this article, there's a great deal – of unknown and difficulty with measuring autophagy flux because it's just tough to measure it in a live tissue um, because that's what the flux component is. But you could find it in like a preserved or killed um, tissue, but you're not able to really find it in vivo, if you will.
1: All right. Well, while cell biology isn't necessarily my field of choice, I can always appreciate a good, a good science pun. And authors that choose to put some puns in their title. I think reviews especially have a lot of really interesting, funny, and sometimes kind of inappropriate, which, again, makes it all the more exciting, title choices. So there's still some humor in science. It's not dead yet.
0: I definitely chose a title that was more PG than it could have been. There, were some, there were some highly suggestive titles incorporated into some review literature. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the scientists that decide to make those puns.
1: Yeah, work hard, play hard.
0: Why not? Well, that's all for this week's episode. Dr. Young's book, The Chemistry Between Us Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction, is available on Amazon.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans.
1: If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release new shows every other Monday, so episode four is coming your way on February 22nd.
0: In our next episode, we are bringing on Harvard psychiatrists and married couple couple of 42 years, Drs. Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, to continue our part two of our mini-series on love.
1: And as always, peace, love, and science.